Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, I went back by renting Cadillac and company jet Like a newly orphan refugee retracing my steps All the way to Casadega to commune with the dead They said you'd better look alive Welcome to After the Deluge, I am Justin Cox. The Bright Eyes record Casadega was released on April 10th, 2007 and debuted at number 4 on the Billboard 200. It's their highest charting US album, selling 58,000 copies in its first week. It won the 2008 Grammy for Best Recording Package with its spectral decoder tool that could be used to reveal mysterious messages in various languages throughout its cover and its sleeves. It's very cool. Robert Criscow gave it four stars in Rolling Stone, and Johnny Depp is on record in 2007 saying... He loved it. I won't go crazy sharing my feelings about this one in the intro because you'll hear them all over this episode. I also won't go deep into the Pitchfork review because one of our guests today wrote that review and gave it a 6.0. In this episode, I mentioned a few times that I love a select handful of songs on this record, but I never actually like rattle them off, so I'm just going to do that right here. They are Clairaudience, Four Winds, Classic Cars, Middleman, and I Must Belong Somewhere. Those songs carried this record for me upon purchase, especially Classic Cars, which is one of my favorite Bright Eyes songs, period. In revisiting it this week, to be totally fair, I'll add Clen's song and Lime Tree to that list, with a slight tip of the cap to Coat Check Dream Song just for being unique and weird and something entirely its own. Casadega is quite literally some people's favorite Bright Eyes record. A decent contingent of people truly, deeply, deeply love this record. I asked about it on the Bright Eyes subreddit the day before doing this interview, and the praise came rolling in immediately for it. It's very cool and interesting to me that that's the case, because as you might be starting to deduce, it's not uh, the case for me. I was lucky to have two guests on this episode. The first is Brian Howe, an acclaimed arts and culture journalist, critic, and editor who writes about music, art, film, and more. He's written hundreds of reviews for Pitchfork over two decades, including this one right here. My other guest is Evan Bailey, who fronts the Sacramento band Oh Lonesome Anna. Before I moved to Washington a few years back, I played in a band that shared some bills with Evan's previous project while I lived in Sacramento. His songwriting, in particular the way he arranged songs, sort of blew my mind. Really glad to talk about music with him anytime I get the chance to do that, and today was no different. Uh, He sent an encouraging note after I launched the series and specifically mentioned Casadega. So when that episode came around, hit him up, and here we are today. If you enjoy this show, please take a second to rate it, review it, and share it. It means a lot, it helps a lot, um, and I appreciate you doing that. You can find me on Elon Musk's new toy at the handle Routine Layup, or you can email me directly at justincox22 at gmail.com. Yeah, we're off to see the mystics, the healers, the tarot card readers. We're off to listen to some fiddles. We're off to Casadega. Hope you enjoy this conversation. And I keep looking for that blindfold faith Lighting candles to a cynical saint Who wants the last laugh at the fly trap In the windowsill tape You can go right out your mind Trying to escape From the panic paradox of day to day 
Welcome to After the Deluge. I'm Justin Cox, and my guests today are Brian Howe and Evan Bailey. Say hello. Hey, Justin. Hi there. Awesome. Good to have good to have you both on. So this one is going to be the three of us talking about Casadega, and so. We're going to start with Brian in just a second, but how I came to this record, I'll, I'll have more to say about this in a minute, but this was the first one that I was sort of like, I knew the release date that was sitting there. And for like the three or four or five months leading up to it, I was sort of like hearing the singles or whatever, and just kind of like anticipating a thing. I would go to the record store and buy the day it came out. And I did that. That was, I was downloading files prior to that. I was being given burn CDs. I was out of the country when I'm wide awake. It's morning came out. So I was getting this, like really into this music over a period of time. This was the first time I was like, go buy this thing the day it came out. And I'll, I'll leave that there for now. And Brian, um, tell me about you. How did, what, what, when was your introduction to bright eyes? And then this record specifically. Sure. I, I heard you ask Ian Cohen this question, uh, listening to the podcast, and I was trying to think about how I would answer it because I really don't remember how Bright Eyes came into my life. Um, by the time Casadega came out, which I always want to call Casadaga because yes. that's kind of how it's spelled, but on the record on one of the samples, they say Casadega. So, and that really, it sounds better, but still, I was looking at it today and I was like, wait, is Casadaga? I hesitate every single time I type that that word. Yeah. Right. So um, by the time uh, Casadega came along, um, I, I guess I would I'm what you, you would call like I had a former huge fan who was still trying to like cling to that glory a bit. Um, so I'd been into Bright Eyes ever since the early stuff and Fevers and Mirrors. I'm one of those um, Fevers and Mirrors is the apotheosis of Bright Eyes people. And um, it's all kind of downhill from there, although I am always surprised how good um lifted is when I go back and actually listen to it um, as an adult outside of those kind of concerns of the time. Uh, so I wouldn't have gotten into it on the internet. That wasn't quite the thing yet. Um, I didn't really get into file sharing in a big way until I started writing for Pitchfork, and that was a few years after Fevers and Mirrors. Um, I, was, uh, I was probably like 19. I had dropped out of college at East Carolina University where I was studying visual art and I was getting really into writing. And in particular, I was getting really into the Chapel Hill music scene, which I was writing about for zines and for an alt weekly, um, not long after that. Cool. Um, so at that time, music, which is kind of like the entire fabric of my life, um, I may have just seen it and thought the mirrored cover uh, looked really cool and bought it on the strength of that. Um, but I know I became like hugely into it, like had so much, um, dark cathexis with that album like that album bright eyes and i are pretty much the exact same age so i was also in that transition from my late teens to early 20s at that time um as a you know a white man in suburban america right before the internet um it really just spoke to all of my concerns at, at that time and probably my monumental self-obsession i was i was a real like mega fan in a way that was like uh, kind of core to my identity in some ways at that time. So you can probably already see the dominoes waiting to fall there when <laughs> we both got a little older and I changed and he changed and his music changed and things like that. Um, so Lifted, um, I was definitely still strong enough on my Bright Eyes fandom and that album is just good enough that I, I wrote for Lifted at the time, um, for sure. And it is a good record. Um, there was some part of me that was, I think, disappointed though, because it wasn't like he wasn't in a 
closet with like withdrawal sweats you know you couldn't hear like the sweat dripping you know this flop yeah, sweat yeah. dripping under the guitar strings and stuff like that on fevers and mirrors you're really feeling the tremble and those and those feelings mm-hmm. and hearing mm-hmm. the rooms and stuff yeah yeah so i missed that a bit on lifted but i appreciated that he was having a big moment and that it was a you know progression and all of that so me and lifted were pretty much okay and when i listen to it now i'm always like this is better than i gave it credit for at the time better than i could see through my you know expectations um i thought wide awake was a pretty intolerable album and i listened to it again today and i still think it's a pretty intolerable album <laughs> I would, but i had digital ash and a digital urn to get me through that and still be a bright eyes fan a record i don't really remember at all now but at the time i was like oh yeah this is like my bright eyes record um at that point in my life i was kind of leaving my arch indie lord phase and entering the more poptimist hedonistic phase and you know wanting to go dancing and digital urn had a little bit of that on it um so by the time casadega comes along my expectations are kind of low, but I'm still kind of invested. I still kind of want some of that old bright eyes magic and think I might be able to get it. Um, but really, when I look back at that record, it, it, it struck me. It felt like the end of something, um, kind of the end of an arc, probably for him and for me. And that thing was probably just like um, our 20s. Of course, he was dealing with other things. I think maybe the fallout from all the um, the new Dylan um things which um I, I did some reading up on today which was pretty interesting maybe we can talk about that later yeah i came to casa Diego with you know all that baggage um got assigned the pitchfork review and i don't know maybe we should save the the pitchfork review talk for later and i'll give evan a crack at this before i go on any longer but you can read the review and see i, I wasn't a big fan of casa Diego. listening to it now uh, it kind of grew on me a little bit today I, it's not a great record it's a pretty good record. There's some cringe moments on it. But then I also think about how anytime you make yourself sit down and listen to music, most of the time it sounds pretty good. Like it's music. Like it doesn't yeah. generally sound that bad. Um, the question is whether you are called back to listen to it again. And Casadega was certainly an album that I kind of forgot after it came out and have hardly ever gone back to it. Yeah, as we kick over to Evan, like I think I remember that those first plays of it, like certain moments like grabbing me very hard, like a really loving and still really loving a a certain set of songs. But then also, yeah, songs were like, man, I could appreciate what was being done and the like care that was taken to make it. I mean, there's a lot of, it it feels like a piece, you know, they do accomplish that. But that thing you just described about being pulled and called back to the songs, I'd say a little more than half of them. I'm like, don't just automatically and viscerally do that. But it's even why it's like this thing, like, man, I respect what you are more than I just like you kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah. All right. All right. Evan bright eyes and Casadega specifically. And I'm going to say, I want to say real quick, like what I just described, not, not about the part that where the songs call you back, but the, but the thing feeling like a cohesive, well thought out thing. That's the thing that I would say about both of Evan's bands that I've listened to you, you guys, it's like, this is not just, tossed on and and to and recorded this is thought this is very thought out and placed mm-hmm. together and and it see something about that could be just me projecting that onto why we're talking about Casadega right now but i've done that in my head just so you know so go ahead evan <laughs> uh, evan real quick i I, did, I deliberately did not listen to your music before this podcast because i didn't want it to get mashed up with bright eyes in my head but i look forward to listening to it um after we're done cool Sounds good. I, I think we uh we kind of have an agreement here about this being the uh the arc of Bright Eyes, but I love it personally. Um and I think the way that I came into it is 
So when I was a kid, I was, uh, I grew up in an uh, evangelical Christian household. And uh, in high school, I was into mostly punk rock, um, especially like skate, skate punk, like lag wagon. Um, and then in, uh, after, after 9-11, I joined the army. Um, and so I was in the army and actually the, uh, I heard a little bit of lifted, um, uh, but the first, like, um, I think the first thing I really got into was a wide awake, you know, cause I'm sort of basic in that way. And I think that's when a lot of, um, kind of like indie folk was happening at the time. And that, that was kind of the place I was going after I was into punk rock. So when I kind of ended the punk rock phase and I was in the army, I was kind of like, I was doing a lot of file sharing, a lot of lime wire. So I, <laughs> that's where I got a, a lot of the bright eyes exposure is just like illegally downloading albums and just pouring through records. And I think uh, Casadega is the first re uh, bright eyes record that I bought. I purchased, I bought it on vinyl. Um, and I, I think I had like maybe two Sufjan records. Mm -hmm. This is maybe like the fourth or fifth vinyl that, that I, that I bought before then I just had CDs. So, um, it, it's kind of like an important record. And, and after I got out of the army, I was kind of like losing a lot of the Christianity that was in my life. I was kind of like in this journey of like losing faith. Um, and I think there's some places on this record that kind of like in in hindsight um the kind of the obsession with the apocalypse um there's there's a thread there um there's a thread about just like trying to find some sense of spirituality that makes sense yeah um that's not like a traditional spirituality there's like a call to kind of like nature that's happening in this that i think i kind of uh responded to now the older bright eyes records i think uh, stand up better a little for me but i still have like a strong affinity for this i think one of the reasons is because i i kind of lean toward recordings that are more clean a lot of the cool things i like about the um more rough bright eyes recordings those elements can kind of be found on this record too but they're pre presented in this very like you know pristine kind of way which i think it, it kind of speaks to me still um and and i i do agree there's some songs that i do, i don't uh i'm not going to put on uh on re repeat or anything but uh but i think there's some strong songs here there's strong material here and uh and i also think that um there's a lot of callbacks uh to the previous records kind of represent represent ideas in in uh in a in a more clean clean way and I, and I think I kind of still respond to it so I think pristine is a good word for it. it it all it all feels like it's made in the same room by the same people with this like collection of instruments and everything whereas like when you describe lifted lifted th for me like it thrives on just purely being whatever it is but like it's a fucking mess in terms of of it's it's not consistent at all in what it sounds like it's everywhere you know it doesn't feel that way but the the part where it the part where i it hangs me up and this is like this was my experience with the record having bought it i think like i did buy the cd i have it here and so you like i remember i went there with the, the girl that i dated pre right previously to getting married just a weird vivid memory because that was like done within days of that but until like i'm at this record store i get this cd this little spectral decoder and like this it's like creating an experience for you 
And then as I listened to it over the following like weeks and months, it's like I was trying to like get myself to love all of it. You know, like I'd get my four or five songs, yeah. but then you're just like, why do I keep skipping? No one would riot for less. Like, just do it. This thing is a full package. Just keep going. But like those songs, as much as they felt impressive to me, they kind of felt impressive in a way that was like, I'm sitting in a chair, like six rows back and watching the Nutcracker suite or something and like hearing little flutters of violins and things. It's like, I get that that's a choice and I get that that might be being executed well. It's not, it's not what I'm here for, you know, but all the respect you do, you do what you do. But so Brian, you get assigned that pitchfork review. Is that a, a process of tr- of claiming that you want to write this and then they go about it or a pure assignment based thing? How do you end up with that one? And just kind of more broadly, how does that work? Sure. Um, well, real quick, I wanted to say I felt a little bad having been uh, slagging off these records that uh, Evan likes so much. But I do think that Evan probably has a much clearer perspective on these records than I do. Um, I'm able to bring a lot more impartiality to them now at age 43 than I was in you know my 20s when they were coming out. But because of the situation I described with how like closely associated I was with those early records, it's still really hard for me to kind of hear them for what they are and to dis- disentangle them from myself, both from my fond memories about them and from the things that I hate about myself now that you know I saw in myself then. So um, I think Evan probably brings a much clearer perspective, having come to it at maybe a, a slightly later time in life and come to the cleaner, you know, records first. Um, and also, I just I like experimental music, so I like I like dark, cramped, scribbly sounds like he had on those early records, maybe more than some of the orchestrations. Um, so the review, I have no idea how I got assigned that review because it works um, all kinds of ways. Sometimes you um, pitch records and you get assigned those. Um, sometimes the editor will just ask so-and-so, you know, to review this record. I've written about Bright Eyes a few times, but probably less than you would think. I think editors would like shy away from giving me Bright Eyes stuff sometimes because I seemed a little too like close <laughs> to it maybe. And I, I think they were probably right about that. I think I wrote this review I wrote a blurb about him for some pitchfork list. I wrote about Thievers and Mirrors. Maybe it was our 90s list before the current 90s list, something like that. Um, so I haven't gotten to write about him that that much. So I'm sure I was pitching you know, all those records up to this one, and maybe they finally just decided to give me this one. Uh, maybe nobody else cared about it that much or something. Or, or maybe they decided it was time I had my crack. I don't know. Um, at any rate, so that was your question: is how I came to have that review, and yeah. And then, so as you sit down, you're listening to this record, you're thinking about it, you're processing it, and going about the process of writing. You're you you kind of lead with this uh, Dave Eggers comparison, which was a fascinating, yeah. interesting one to read. And so that's the like heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius with like the like 150 page long preface. That I mean, it's not it's not. It, it was kind of stunning to me how much it felt like bright eyes in book form at that period you know everything down to Mm -hmm. like the six minutes of of talking about random shit before the music starts like um i don't know i don't i don't even really have a question there except that i really enjoyed that in the in the interview and been thinking about it ever since that was kind of fun to go back and read justin um you know i i wish i could say i had any memory of writing that review or what i was thinking or feeling Uh, i've written like 560 something for reviews that one was in 2007, so there's a lot of water under the bridge. That's just stunning to me that you've written that many of them. And I was actually, me too. I, I was, I was uh, browsing through, landing on pages the way I do sometimes when I was listening to some music the other day. 
I was actually thinking about some like a future thing I might do on this podcast. And I landed on the page for the microphones, um, mm. the microphones follow-up album to the glow part two blood. And as I was like reading about it, you wrote it. <laughs> I was like, Oh, that's, we're talking on Sunday. That's like, this is so funny to me. And if you would ask me, Brian, have you ever written about the microphones? I would have said, no, I have no memory. <laughs> I have no I... memory whatsoever of, of writing about that. Um, so that's funny. So, but anyway, uh, I always, you know, I always suck in my, my teeth a little bit before I go to look at one of my reviews in the, in the archive. I'm a big repudiator personally, anything I've done more than like six months to a year ago, I probably have repudiated it and do not like it. But sometimes <laughs> I go back in the archive and I find something like, oh, you did okay on that one, little guy. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily love the writing style in this one, but I, I do think that point was kind of interesting. And so, like, I came back to it as a reader, having forgotten that I had written it. And I was like, yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that kind of holds up. So, uh, yeah, here were these two uh, these two people. One a one an author, one a musician. Um, the main contrast, of course, is that Eggers is this like rampant like enthusiast, this like kind of extrovert seeming personality and very like up in your face with your shirt collar, you know, like yelling into your face kind of guy. And then Bright Eyes is you know the opposite extreme, like the guy who's like you know cringing in the closet or something, um, you know, hiding from everybody. But you know, here are these two works of like monumental self-obsession, I guess you would have to call it, um, with these kind of metatextual touches, whether it's, you know, obviously all the Egger stuff, Bright Eyes with this like fake interview on Fevers and Mirrors, um, uh, stuff like that. Um, and they had both been so like problematic, but good in that, mm -hmm. um, in that self-obsessed mode because they were writing something real and something they like really knew. Um, I haven't read a heartbreaking work of staggering genius in many, many, many years. I'm sure I would find it hard to swallow now, but it made a big impression um, on me at the time. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Eggers, after that book, turned to writing these much more um, political novels, which seemed like farcical to me. I mean, they were they were absurd books. That same lens of like self-obsession that magnified the self so much and had that lacerating quality when you turned it like outward onto the world it like it just it just didn't work it didn't work the, or it didn't work the same way and everything that was corny about it was just like magnified and amplified times like a hundred yeah. it's so true and so real but i i just think it i do think it's important to also like take ourselves and put ourselves back i've really enjoyed that about this podcast but just like drop ourselves squarely into 2003 through 2005 and how it felt you know i think it comes mm -hmm. from a place of just like I can't just sing about myself in my right. quaver. I, I can't like, it feels like I got to do right. Like, so, but I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I agree that it can come off that way, but also I bet I, I know I had conversations where I sounded that way out of pure, just like, yes. what are we doing if we're not talking about this shit right now? You know? Right. The impulse was good. The execution was bad and full of like, blind spots um i mean there's some things on this record lyrically i mean some of it's just cheesy like why why are you like phil ox why, why are you singing like it's like i ain't marching anymore or something like how who who are you who are you supposed to be like <laughs> you used to sing about like a girl who was like combing her hair in the mirror before school and it was something you saw and described and that was great what the hell are you even singing about on this album casadega a lot of the time i try and listen to the lyrics i'm like i have no idea 
what you're talking about. Um, but some of the stuff, like some of the stuff even struck me as problematic then in 2007. And that's saying something because I was fucking oblivious in 2007. But I knew there was something like cringe and bad and not right about a uh, soul singer in a session band and the kind of persona and the positionality he had on that even then. See the soul singer in the session band shredded to ribbons beneath a microphone stand felt the quickness of pity like a flash in a pan for the soul singer in the session band i mean looking back at my review i was kind of i was kind of surprised about how hard i was on it and i kind of pursued this point about the lyrics to a point that was kind of single-minded and simple-minded to a point that was even unfair but i don't think i was wrong <laughs> about yeah. uh, about the problems with these lyrics um in any way but also i was still i think i was still feeling kind of like betrayed by bright eyes then, and you know working that out which is to say i was feeling betrayed by myself for growing up and for the um you know illusions and dreams of my 20s to start to fracture and the whole world to open out beyond that so it's it's impossible to overstate like like if you find an artist at a certain time in your life and they mean a certain thing, everything that comes later is going to be processed through that. And I think a, a, yeah. a super personal thing like Bright Eyes is going to be extra of that. So like my Evan has some version that, and I have my own version that is picking up bits and pieces in the like between lifted and I'm wide awake. So that then when you get Casadega, you're not, you're not, you haven't like, you're 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 not even in a position to be betrayed or let down so significantly mm. in any way. You know, mm. it's like that's right. Just the next record, you know. Up to this point, this one is weird. It's not divisive, but it's like some people. It is their favorite Bright Eyes record. Like that exists, and I think that's like a thing that's grown in a way. And some people, it's. It, I, I don't. I don't think that like lifted fevers and mirrors. I'm wide awake. It's morning is like a different beast. I'm wide awake in digital ash. Like this one could be anywhere on someone's list of like good or bad for bright eyes in a way that it's very, very, right. you know, I wanted to say to Brian two things. Uh, I think that like me now, obviously you said like you, you're kind of apologizing for your perspective, <laughs> which I don't, uh, I don't, the me now like has, has no concern over your perspective uh oh, sure. and, I, and i think like uh no no apologies required and, and i also appreciate your perspective more now than i did when i when probably when you wrote that review um and and i can't also i can't disentangle myself from the person i was when i yeah. first heard the record either so we're in basically in the same exact situation in that I was the person I was when I first heard it and you were the person you were when you first heard it. And so that leads us into totally different places. But I yeah. think that uh, not being able to remove yourself from the material is it is a, like a commonality we have. So no, no sure. apologies, obviously no apologies needed. I don't, I don't feel a, per, a <laughs> personal, I don't feel a need to personally like uh, uh, stand up for, for this material. Um, yes. and it, but there is something past me uh, does have a beef with you. Uh, okay. You ruined the song Four Winds for me. Me and too. I, I, I know. Gra I grabbed the quote here. Uh, Four Winds uh, with its squealing guitars and fiddles sounds like a honky tonk version of Santa Claus is coming to town. And um, I was listening to this record pretty uh, regularly 
And I, there was a period in time where I would check Pitchfork and I did read your review back when it, uh, probably a few months after the record came out. And ever since then, I cannot get that out of my head. So thank well, you. Well, it's really, it's really flagrant. Yeah, it's really flagrant <laughs> though. I mean, some, you know, often you'll pick out a little similarity here and there, but I listened to it today and I was like, nope, that one part is fucking Santa Claus is coming to town. And one specific arrangement of Santa Claus is coming to town where it has that stop and then it starts again. <laughs> it's that one with the violin, like it is bang on. like a serious song and it's such a weird like melodic reference to like come in there so i'm sorry to have ruined that for you i think justin said that ian did that to him there was a song on fevers and mirrors where that you can sing uh no woman no cry over is that right justin <laughs> yeah yeah uh yeah. something vague it wouldn't have hurt if it wasn't true <laughs> i know so, no that you know. i i think that i read that review around the time it was out too um because i remember the part in it about about the conversation with the postmodern author for some reason. I think I remember remembering that because I was like, I don't actually understand the specifics of what we're talking about here, but it stood out to me for that specific reason. And so I like read into it. The, the Santa Claus is coming to town. One was a new, that was ruined for me this week specifically to the point that when I reread the interview, like an hour or so ago before this, once I saw that sentence come up, I was like, just breeze through that. Don't get Santa Claus is coming to town back into your head. Like, and it, and the intro of four winds is so long playing out that kind of melody. It just, it's just inviting you to think about it. So sorry for however many people that are going to get. Yes. To I apologize to the listeners, but you know what? I didn't tell him to put two bars of Santa Claus is coming to town in his serious protest song. He did. I, somebody had to say something. So. Do I cut Santa Claus is coming to town into this podcast? <laughs> I think so. You got to find the right version though to sell it. Santa Claus is coming to town. Also, I worked in retail for about 10 years, so <laughs> Santa Claus is Coming to Town it has a, a particular grating impact on my ears. Yes. Yeah. Understandable. Understandable. Right. I, I, Justin, you mentioned the part in the Soul Singer of the Session Band about the postmodern author. Yeah, that's just such a bizarre, it was such a bizarre choice. He's talking about having a conversation about the power of myth with a postmodern author that didn't exist and then it goes into the chorus like the soul singer in the session band. like what are you talking about how is that anything like the soul singer in the session band yeah, yeah. Um, i had a lengthy discussion about the power of myth with a postmodern author who didn't exist in this fictitious world our reality twists i was a whole Romantic, now I'm just turning tricks. Just like that soul singer in the session band. What you just said about like whatever he's doing and then bangs back to soul singer in a session band, like that thing. I feel like a convention that I find multiple times on this record that bothers me is like, all right, I got my little line, soul singer in a session band, if the break man turns my way. And it's like, do my little things to where I can come back to say that thing again in a way that I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to hear you say if the break man yeah. turns my way again. 
Well, I think one key thing about this record is that underneath uh, everything else that's going on, I think if it's one kind of record, it's a country record. And those are the kind, a lot of the kind of signifiers it's going for yeah. um, and kind of its um, mythology. And so, yeah, and that he's trying to do that thing that great like pop country songwriters do where you have a chorus, a little like just, you know, a bit of syntactical stuff in the chorus and you can bend the verses around it in such a way that it changes the meaning of the chorus through syntax Lots of great country songs do this. I think that's what he's trying to do. But he writes far too many words of far too much complexity for them to ever hook that way. So the whole system of it just kind of goes haywire and he ends up making comparisons he probably doesn't even mean to make. Just so the chorus happens to say like at the beginning. So anything else in the verses is going to be like that. And uh, it all just gets kind of like wedged in whether it kind of makes sense or not. And I could meet you there i have there are about five songs on this record that i really really love one of them is four wins quite honestly i don't care but uh it's it's being battle tested now uh, as we head into Christmas season, but <laughs> Four Winds has a good chorus. The chorus of Four, every, every like tons of songs from this have like a great like part on them. And he still he he writes really good melodies. He makes yeah. good arrangements when they're really small and they're not like these big orchestrated like youth group kind of things. Um, and I think he's a really good singer. I mean, I think people say like, oh, he can't really sing. Uh, I think he has an interesting voice. I like his singing a lot. I mean, Four Winds has a good chorus the verses of the song of breakman are pretty good especially that stepwise descending melody at the end of the verses of breakman he's always really good at those first the mother bathes her child then the other way around the scales always find the way to level out i try to pass for nothing but my dreams gave me they all have those moments and then there's some there'll be another part that you know kind of walls me off from them oh yeah that's where you're going to find a center of energy and they've got those in arizona too you know there's i know that there's wonderful grounds that have vortexes that you might be interested in going to and then go to nevada and then go to california and then come south back through Arizona and go through Texas, you know what I'm saying? Getting rid of the old feelings of the old ways of thinking. And, you know, it's kind of like when people do the tarot cards. Just because you get the death card doesn't mean death is dying. spoke to me in a way where one it's a callback to this like trope of doing the the sam sampling 
thing, you know, like that, that I think is, is sort of like a through, a through line and uh, up to that point, right. It's basically a through line of every bright eyes record. There's some sort of sample that intros, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Connor talking like in wide awake, or it's a, a noise sample, or it's an audio clip. Um, in this case, I think, you know, if I had to say that the theme of the record is actually probably what I responded to. And I think um, this idea of like uh, Casadega being a place that you could go um, or a place that you could go to find cleansing or that you can travel somewhere to find cleansing, I think is like what the sample's pointing at. And, and in a way, it kind of like strikes at the theme of the record. And I think there's this... Uh, this line from the sample, um, it's like uh, Casadega might just be a premonition of a place uh, you're going to visit, um, and I and I think that's kind of a through line of the record, and a through line that I that I like. Um, some of the pieces, like I totally agree with about falling flat, um, but the the sample into the beginning acoustic guitar in Claire Audience, I think is it still holds up really well and the swelling kind of orchestral thing um, at the beginning it's all really beautiful corporate old colonial the movement is unstoppable like the body of the centerfold it spreads to the counterculture copyright it's your revolution at a lower price Or make believe and throw the fight Play dead It's exploding bags, aerosol cans Southbound buses, Peter Pan They left it up to us again I thought you knew the drill It's killed Four Winds, also like that song. Um, I think that's where we get into like the pretty uh, serious, like uh, biblical references. And there's this like an, another through line of uh, Babylon, which keeps on coming up, which I think is this idea of like America at the time um, being the uh, the empire that's ending. Um, yeah. You know, which I think is also like uh, a through line that's kind of like sort of held up in hindsight uh and then toward the end there's some pretty very pretty songs like cleanse song a lime tree mm -hmm. um, it, those are beautiful songs um i think i think lime tree holds up with a lot of songs that he's he's ever written um so yeah that's kind of where those are kind of my heavy hitters for the record i think both Sorry, those two you mentioned are real they're Powerful songs and also like very vulnerable feeling. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Brian. Uh, yeah, I was just going to agree that Lime Tree is really good. It's actually the, the one I singled out for unalloyed praise in that review I wrote all those years ago. And I think I wrote about it then in the context of it being um, an example of his emotional intelligence, which is the kind he's always had so much of, um, as opposed to this kind of like political intelligence or moral intelligence he was trying to explore on a lot of the record in a way that felt or 
or records leading up to that that felt a little maybe presumptuous to me because he wasn't quite that prophetic to be uh, to be getting that that moral with things. Um, but yeah, Lime Tree was a really good song. I keep floating down the river, but the ocean never comes. And since the operation, I heard your breathing just for one. Now everything's imaginary, especially what you love. You left another message, said it's done. Um, the one that, you know, when I thought back on this record today, like I couldn't really remember songs. The one thing that sticks with me about this record um, was more of a feel or a vibe. It's kind of that numinous, mystical kind of feel that courses through it. Um, one place you hear that is definitely on um, Claire Audien, that first song, which I think is is definitely a pretty a pretty good one. Um, and also on, oh, oh, what was the name of that other song? I don't have to look. Oh, the one near the end, which is um, probably my favorite song on the record, which is the, oh my God, I'm so blanking on the name, Dream. Uh, Coat Check Dream Song. Yeah. Yes, Coat Check Dream Song. Thank you. That has that kind of really like sinuous, sidewindy feel. Um, that's the only thing that stuck with me from this record after all these years was that kind of that feel. And I was surprised at how little of it there actually was on the record when I went back to it today um, and how that just made such so much more of an impression on me than a lot of the kind of roots rocky stuff. Um, that song in particular, Kochek Dream Song, um, I think it's a good, it's a really good song. It's not a good old Bright Eyes song. It's not like he went back to old Bright Eyes. It's a good song that is like something else. Shrill as a choir children Urgent like the first day of May False and inflatable feeling Tugs at my senses Big as the Macy's parade The version where he constantly does something different with each record is is good, no matter how you spin it, right? Like, if you just like, oh man, I'm wide awake, it's morning, this really hit. Um, I, I think he's directly responding to I'm Wide Awake It's Morning by making songs that take a little while. They're not <laughs> the way I feel about these songs, which is is not a compliment, but is very much like contrasted against I'm Wide Awake It's Morning, is that this is a record full of five minute songs that feel to me like they're six and a half minutes long. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. That's it. That's even I mean, even some of the really make a plan to love me is a really pretty song. But fuck, that song feels long, and it's not that long. But it just seems like it will never like get where it's going and never, never end. When you're young, the world's a Ferris wheel. I know we will grow old. It's lovely still. Really quick, um, there's something you said, Brian, about um, not knowing where to take the project. And I think that there's like actual lyrical references on Middleman. It kind of like made me think about this idea of I keep my exits wide, never know when it's time to go. 
this could be interpreted as as a you know kind of like is is it time to leave this project is it time to do something yes. new? the moving on theme i think kind of is self-referential in that way i think it kind sure. of apl applies to the project mm -hmm. um and i think he he's very conflicted about whether or not to move on so I keep my footlights shining bright just like i keep my exits wide cause i never know when it's time to go it's too crowded now inside to uh no one will write for less there's a line where he says i'm leaving this place there's nothing i'm planning to take um but then uh in i must belong somewhere he says uh i wish you'd leave me here uh like i'm not leaving so i think he's kind of feeling conflicted about whether whether or not to leave where where, where to go so probably both in life and and musically so yeah i don't have the details but i know that immediately i mean it's four more years until another bright eyes record happens and there's multiple solo records and a monsters of folk record and i mean he kind of does leave it for a little bit after this if you are into getting a bright eyes zine some extra content or if you just want to support the creation of this show go to patreon.com slash after the deluge it's just one five dollar tier super simple easy Thank you for the support. Want to get more music history in your podcast feed? Check out our friends Brian and Murdoch over at Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Two longtime buddies and old rock radio cast-offs connect weekly to discuss a different rumor or lingering question. What's real, what's not, and what's just rock and roll? Liam and Noel, Jagger and the Queen, The Weaker Thens, Nine Inch Nails, Kate Bush, they get into all that and so much more. Get a new story every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Just search rock and roll bedtime stories. Yeah, there's a sense of exhaustion to it that is really kind of beautiful when it works, but sometimes also just does feel a little bit like exhausted, a little bit out of ideas maybe. I think there's there's too much fiddling on the record, and I'm not anti-fiddling by any means, um, especially if it's a nice fiddle just slipped into the music, but it's like, okay, time for fiddling. And it's maybe a little bit of like, well, here's a verse I don't have to write if we just have a nice another passage of fiddling here. Like maybe the ideas were running then. But I think, I mean, we have to remember this is like several years after the kind of New Dylan, uh, you know, is he the New Dylan wave had, uh, or bubble had inflated and then maybe, you know, burst or or just kind of slowly deflated. That didn't really seem like to take off. And and that's not his fault. I mean, that was always a really absurd thing because he's nothing like Dylan in so many ways, even though he may try to put on a Dylan move for his like protest song sometimes. His songwriting yeah. is is very, very different. I was actually fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole today. I was like, who was saying that Bright Eyes was the new Dylan? And what you find is a lot of articles saying, people say that he is the new Dylan, but nobody actually yeah. saying that he's the new Dylan. I'm like, who was patient zero here? Who was the first person to say this? The earliest thing I could really find was in 2005, the Sasha Frere Jones New Yorker article, where he said, people are saying he's the new Dylan. It was right in the lead. Um, and I was a little surprised about kind of how early that was and how that was entrenched. So already by 2005, by the album before this, that cycle is already like well underway. And granted, I'm thinking about it more as a critic than an artist now, but at the same time, if you're operating at a certain level and people are saying things like that about you, it's got to affect your psyche and yeah. it's got to affect your songwriting somehow. And I listen to something like Casadega and I'm like, 
is this still an attempt to follow through on that? Or is this an attempt to like kind of slither out the side door of that uh, kind of oversized legend of bright eyes? And I kind of feel like maybe it was the latter. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. There is a, a point in the lyrics here on clear audience. I mean, there might be other places this happens to, but this song is obviously like or, uh, anti-corporate and there is there does appear to be a Dylan reference at the end <laughs> of the song where he says, would you agree times have changed? Um, so I think that probably undergirds your point that it's kind of a stick in the eye of like, I'm not, this is not who I am. He just had the most successful record release. You know, the, the last bright eyes record was the most successful of, of their catalog. And, mm-hmm. uh, and now you're, you're seeing the, all the Dylan comparisons and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a it's an interesting place to put a Dylan reference. Did you know that he was? I don't know if he auditioned or if he was just considered or whatever. But he was like fully in the conversation to play that Oscar Isaac role in Inside Lewin Davis. No. Yeah, that was. I did not know that. That's the, wild. The the degree to which that was like really 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 a thing, I'm not really sure. Maybe I'm doing the people were saying type thing right now. <laughs> but there's there's some level of. I mean, I think it was like. I feel like it was him saying he's glad he didn't do it or something. But I mean, that <laughs> isn't inside the Davis is its own movie, but a bit of a Dylan story, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. That's pretty wild. Fascinating. <laughs> that would have been weird. That would have been really weird. Um, yeah. You know, but um, Evan was talking earlier about Casadega and the themes of like spirituality and how he talks about it. I want to be sure I'm not confused about this. Casadega is a real place, right? Isn't it? Wasn't it like a real like spiritual retreat? It's the uh, psychic capital of the world in Florida. Hmm. And I think that the samples at the beginning of the record are basically like uh, phone phone in psychics. I think okay. Probably, probably called a bunch of psychics and got a bunch of audio samples uh from like uh uh dial up psychics that'd be my guess yeah um but yeah it, it casadega is the it's a reference to the this town in florida that's the, the psychic yeah. capital of the, of the world they're also referencing like similar things happening in arizona and these other places with these like kind of like energy vortex like yeah i think the idea being that like it's not the place in florida it's it's anywhere that's healing you know, like anywhere. There's a line where I wrote down uh, cleanse in cleanse song where he says, "A place to get get clean, maybe Los Angeles, somewhere no one's expecting." Don't forget what you learned. All you give is returned. And if life seems absurd, what you need is some laughter and a season to sleep and a place to get clean. Somewhere no one's expecting On a detox walk through a Glendale park Where the sidewalk chops and the road and red start over So I muffle my scream on an Oxnard beach Full of fever dreams that scare you sober And then at the end of the record too There's a line in Lime Tree Where he's talking about um, walking into the forest This idea like that the, there's no time better than now so the feeling of being conflicted, like to just take a leap. And the, and I think the, like the last lines on the record are walked into the woods. I felt lost and found with every step I took. I took off my shoes and walked into the woods. 
So I think that's kind of like a wrap on the on the idea of Casadega being, you know, a place you could go at any time and not just like one location. Right. See, I thought it was I thought it was an actual like a one like kind of spiritual retreat or cleansing kind of place that he went to maybe to to dry out or just to heal mentally in some way um i don't know i wasn't super clear on that but i mean that's clearly i guess then where the kind of the whole like mystical vibe of the record comes in it's actually a really weird record in that way it's like so mystical on one extreme and the other extreme is just like this countrypolitan record or this like like kind of honky-tonky sounding record sometimes it's pretty strange um hybrid when you really kind of dig down into it and, and there's like a conflict at the core of that that's probably the conflict of Bright Eyes and probably the reason why this is the last record for four years or something where mm-hmm. there is there is like a palpable uh, conflict going on here between even the songs on the record and how they sound. I like the point you make about Casadega is not a place in Florida and this record is about that this is a thing you can go to anywhere anytime it's it's something more broad it represents something more broad it, otherwise if it was about some spiritual journey at this specific place in Florida it fails to be a cohesive thing in that way but if it's a thing about l- looking for some kind of spiritual clarity or something you can find that all over but sonically you're right like okay you can find that all over but then squarely in the middle of it is classic cars a song about a older woman you dated that's right a song i love a song a song i personally love (laughs) that's right but doesn't fit in that you know there's some messiness like a big a big part of messiness in some of the through lines of the narrative that i'm kind of like trying to draw together as i was listening to this again and i think the most compelling thing for me is like in lime tree this idea of fruit rotting and sometimes the fruit rots and it falls on the ground and sometimes you you pick it and it's it's ripe to eat and so this idea of like there's no better time than now to find a place to heal um it, i i think it's kind of a a beautiful uh uh concept and i and i think the places where where that's brought up it it turns up a lot in the in the finding meaning and finding meaning in a place i think turns up in most of the songs um and even like this idea of like the break man you know it, i could be anywhere it just depends on what the break man decides you know so i i i like that thread and i think that's the thing that i enjoy the most about the record and maybe the things that bother you brian i think in hindsight also bother me and there's a lot of chaos that kind of like doesn't fit in that that theme very cleanly mm-hmm. but i think that makes sense from the perspective of a band that's kind of like breaking apart that doesn't have like a unified direction anymore. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, like I said, I hadn't listened to this record in a very long time and I've listened to it, you know, two or three times uh, this week leading up to this. And what I found is that, you know, it's not like uh, the scales fell from my eyes and I'm like, this is an incredible bright eyes album, but I found myself liking it a bit more each time I listened to it and finding, you know, more things to like about it. I mean, just today, classic cars, which you mentioned kind of jumped out at me as just like a nice, unobjectionable song that I would have kind of overlooked in my twenties, probably that, you know, sounds better to me now. 
She was a real royal lady, true patron of the arts. Said the best country singers die in the back of classic cars. So if I ever got too hungry for a suitcase or guitar, to think of him all alone in the dark. Um, same with Clint's song, probably, which has a little like, to me, it sounds a little bit like Paul Simon turning into Jimmy Buffett, like before our ears, which is pretty freakish, but <laughs> kind of cool. That's um, why that right there is why you've written 500 pitchfork reviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mind, my mind being broken in that particular way is why I'm still <laughs> eking out a pitchfork review a month after almost 20 years or whatever it's been now. Um so yeah, I keep finding records moments uh, on this record where I'm like, oh, that's cool. Or that's a nice little Bright Eyes moment. I still find little moments to appreciate in Bright Eyes. And I'm finding a lot more of them on this album than I did back then. Although I do also continually encounter things like, why does he have a British accent on Soul Singer in a session band? Why does he, <laughs> why is he singing with a British accent on the chorus? Why are there so many horrors on this record? I mean, I know the horror of Babylon is like, a, he's doing this whole religious thing, but like, I'm like, I think I've heard you say horror enough times on this record <laughs> by the second or third song, Connor, let, let's move on with that. So that's a re uh, reference from Revelations. Oh yes, I know. Where I think he's pointing to <laughs> America there, but yeah, I kind of agree on, on all that stuff. I got the reference. I just thought he liked saying "war" a little bit too much. Yeah, it's probably true. It's probably true. Uh, and I, I think that set Salutations record is really good. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, he had Rumination. Cool Ruminations is the one with just the piano, and then Salutations is like fleshed out versions of those songs. I like the I like the stripped down one. Yeah, whichever that one was. I saw that yeah. tour by pitching to write an article for for the Alt Weekly in Sacramento, hmm. getting to go to it based on that, and then that. Alt weekly saying, now nah, we're cool. We don't need an article about that. And so <laughs> don't know if I should be putting that, putting that out there, but just went to that show and saw, saw a young, young Phoebe Bridgers at that show. It's interesting. Oh, cool. So speaking of live shows, I want to go to that. Casadega was actually, I, I explained my arrival at Bright Eyes. I had never seen them live until that time. And I saw, I saw two shows and this was kind of like, they were, it makes sense, right? Like you hear this record, they were all dressed in white suits with a big band and all the, the fiddle and all the like strings. And <laughs> it was, it was a grandiose thing. And Jim James from my morning jacket was opening and Jillian Welch was opening. It was, it was a pretty big thing. I, but I remember watching, I remember seeing these and being so excited. Like my friend and I, I was just like, I need, I haven't seen this. Like it's been this slow build of, of really loving this person's music seeing the show, really, really liking the show, but just being so in the moment cognizant that I just missed when I needed to see this, mm -hmm. this musician, you know, cause it was, mm -hmm. I was getting these, I was getting songs from lifted and fevers and mirrors and I'm wide awake. It's morning. And it was so good, but just remember being no, knowing that it was like, I'm finding what I really, really want here in one third <laughs> of the set, you know, or half probably. Justin, I, I got really into the Chapel Hill music scene right after Archers of Loaf and Polvo broke up. So I'm very familiar with that. I just missed the best party in the world <laughs> feeling talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so then, so I, I saw that show and then I went actually and visited a friend in LA and maybe I bought these things at the same time. I don't really know, but I saw that tour twice or I saw some period, some post Casa post Dega I saw him twice and I watched in LA my two memories of that one are getting like a song, I can't, some, some 
song from lifted or something starts playing and i was kind of standing back watching from afar just watching the set and just deciding like i'm going up there like i want to go up there like that <laughs> this is the, the thing you can have at a concert like yeah i grew up on punk music and stuff too and just at any given moment if you decide like i don't want to be back here i'm going to go get right up in there you can just do it but let me tell you like you we could talk about like big uh, rough dudes at punk shows they still you still kind of can weasel on through it's just part of what's happening bright eyes fans there was no fucking way i went and i just got so by like a handful of people younger than me guys and girls that just was like absolutely not like this is staked out we have the space you're not going there and just being like okay and then, but what was also is where I was standing back, I was like five feet away from Kirsten Dunst. That was my other memory from that. <laughs> I watched that show next to Kirsten Dunst. That was cool. <laughs> Brian, what was your uh, favorite uh, live experience with this band? I think I've seen them at least twice. Um, the first one is the one I remember because it was just Connor solo. Um, it was at a small club and it was like sometime, I think it was after Fevers, but before... Um, lifted so there was a lot of fever stuff in it super stripped down sweaty unhealthy feeling i loved it sometime after that i saw them with the whole big band i don't remember if it was like lifted or wide awake probably a couple of times probably at the cat's cradle um in chapel hill carborough um and those shows i just don't remember at all they were just one of it, some of the many many shows i saw around that time i think it was it was also just that uh, era of indie music like that mid-2000s era when all the bands had to have like 20 people on stage and they were playing crash cymbals and kazoos and like there was just, it just like maybe wearing marching band like busby like helmets or who knows what the fuck all they were doing they had names like i'm from barcelona and architecture and helsinki just like wild shit going on and i think bright eyes was kind of infected with that too that kind of like big band kitchen sink you know he'd been playing with tilly on the wall like, we tap dance on a box and like just like crazy shit going on and it was a little bit more of like a big muppet production or it was like the it was like the scene at the end of star wars when all the muppets dance or something but it was a bright eyes show it's a big cantina scene <laughs> who's patient zero for that who started that it's like arcade fire or something or who's i don't know polyphonic spree <laughs> couldn't have helped yeah, yeah. they're like band the band as as cult slash daycare that was that was a real weird thing for a while like we all just broke out of preschool and formed a cult and now we're a band <laughs> nice have you seen them live evan yeah so i saw them a few i saw them on uh the first time i saw them was wide awake and i've seen a, a few i saw that had the same exact experience live because i missed the early stuff and i had the same exact experience as you brian just like too many people on stage i couldn't hear what was going on <laughs> like i couldn't relate to anything um it was so so much cacophony i saw him at freeborn i think in 2005 um in davis oh yeah um and the best performance i think i've seen uh, of connor is uh was that was like an afternoon show so that was probably helpful and that was i think mystic mystic valley so love me now looking ahead like what's so funny is i i have listened to people's key but but not like extensively extensively and then the new one 
I was kind of in the process of thinking I would do this, this season of this show. And so I've kind of deliberately not, I'm, I've heard it for sure, but I've kind of deliberately not gone to it. Cause I just want to, I like kind of traveling in time album by album. And I'll, I'll do that when I'm there. But what's so fascinating though, is like, I don't know if I'm going to like those more or less or equally to, to this one, but I know that those ones are not saddled with the baggage I put on this one what this one had to like fulfill because of my expectations going into it. They're just purely music. I get to listen to, you know, which was an, I did the first season of this show was about Jackson Brown and Jackson Brown has five like amazing first albums that kind of, it's really a similar arc. Like they really like go inward and, and, and look at the heart and anything beyond that. That's external is kind of tastefully there. Whereas then he gets into the eighties and it's like, he's, he's singing clumsily about politics and stuff too, you know, maybe curious. Cause he, I mean, he goes four years between this one and, and um, people's key. And then like nine years between that one and the more recent one. So extrapolate that out. It's going to be like a bright eyes record. The next one will be in like 15 years, probably. <laughs> I'm really interested to hear how you're going to handle those more contemporary records that have less baggage and inhabit a very different musical landscape than the, some of the kind of early ones uh, that you've talked about. Um, really curious to see how you'll handle those and who you find that has strong enough feelings about them to like go in deep on them. Like, are you going to find someone who's like a huge people's key fan or like, I'm not sure. Yeah. You know what, what is good about uh, the way I handled it on the Jackson Brown one worked out well as I shifted fully into I'm not telling stories about going to buy the record with my ex-girlfriend on the day. It's just, I'm a journalist asking questions. Teach me about it. Like that's, you're right. But like, I'm I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. I might. Yeah, no, I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see when I go there. It's really fun to just take them one by one though. Are you doing the Conor Oberst albums too? The, that we, Ruminations and the other one we talked about. You need to like, like trigger warning me before asking me that. (laughs) I've like, I've like, there's so many side projects and so many EPs and everything that I like, I might, sure. I think I'll probably do one catch all thing about all of the solo and side project things or something, or, or I think this is actually, I don't think this is even hyperbole. I think there are more bright eyes songs, not on official albums than there are on albums. There are so many <laughs> scattering scattered songs and everything. And then that doesn't even count solo records and, and other ones like it's sh- the sheer volume of songs is right. crazy over that period of time something kind of interesting like a thread here is just like how other people impact a songwriter mm-hmm. yeah there's three core members of bright eyes so what is the place where the people in the band are influencing the writing or the sound as opposed to other side projects or that's a good point because the way I know a Saddle Creek record is you hear Mike Mogus pedal steel on it, and that's like the Saddle Saddle Creel, like Saddle Creek, like you know, stamp and wax is that Mogus pedal steel. So there's definitely a lot of group influence going on in there. Leave the bright blue door on the whitewashed wall. Leave the death ledger under city hall. Leave the joy forever in that rubber ball today. Just leave the lilac print on the 
I wrote something really dumb once I got yelled at. I don't remember if it was in Pitchfork or a zine or Alt Weekly or what about uh, Simon Joyner had come out with a record. And I wrote about how Simon Joyner was just like this watered down Bright Eyes ripoff. Uh, when, of course, I think Simon Joyner was actually a local guy who Bright Eyes himself was like quite inspired by. And, um, I think I got some shade from people who like lived in the area and knew. But, you know, I that's just kind of a symptom of like the early internet days still didn't really understand the difference between like what was real and what wasn't and how it lined up with the real world and how that was changing all the time um but yeah that's probably one of the stupidest bright eyes related things i ever wrote was saying that he ripped off this singer who uh, influenced him or that yeah the singer ripped off him rather i guarantee i've said stupider things so <laughs> you know but did you write them down for everybody to see <laughs> I don't know. Probably nobody re would read them anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of writers for the show and everything. And so like you're talking about like, oh, anything I wrote six months prior to now, I might look back with like some some feeling of I can't remember the word you used, like repudiation, re repudiation. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's so interesting to talk about and think about that kind of thing as it relates to Bright Eyes and Connor Oberst, a person who started documenting things at 14, 15, 16 years old. Mm. It's just there. Mm -hmm. It's just there. Like, and it's, but it's kind of, you, you see it that way, you know, it's like you find the moments that are so bright and promising on that very first collection and letting off the happiness. Yeah. And then you, and then you find the parts of like, man, that sounds like an immature kid just trying to figure out there, but that's like what that is, you know? And then you hit, it's, it's really wild how common it is. Like, then you have this prime moment of like, wow, it's all, pure and real and you mature enough and then it gets to this part where you round a corner and you're at Casadega and it's like you see the the brilliance there but then you also that pure early part is lost is kind of almost all the way gone now I don't know he's had a really long arc of scrutiny and I kind of feel for him in that a bit you know just like you said he's he's been documented since his like preteen years and people have really intense feelings about it. And he's been dealing with that since like, you know, obviously he's not like a pop star, but you know, uh, when you're a teenager and you're big on your local scene, even that's a big thing to like carry. And he's been under that scrutiny for so long. And I definitely like um, empathize with the ways that that is probably, you know, probably been difficult for him. Totally. Um, does it feel like there's anything you guys want to talk about that I, I haven't asked about to make sure we, we get to as we wind ourselves down? Let's see. We didn't talk about the spectral decoder on the album, which was kind of a fevers and mirrors throwback and that it was something funny about the fancy about the physical package. But I don't think the I don't know. Did y'all ever use the spectral decoder? Did it do anything? You have it right there. Beautiful. It's the only it's the You're only right? physical bright eyes thing that I own. CD record, any of it. So what does it say when you put the spectral decoder on it? Rocks beneath the water under some pyramids. Um, a lot of stuff that seems like it might be Latin. Mm hmm. I was kind of like looking into this a bit. I didn't write down all the stuff that, that it says on the cover, but there seems to be a lot of references to the lyrics, um, reference to, uh, I think, a person, uh, maybe somebody who died that played on a Bright Eyes record previously. Mm. Um, seems to be quite quite a few quite a few little messages there. Swollen saints bathing in a backward river under a sliver of a moon. I think the combination of like that, that that's, that's unique, you know, that's a, that's going the extra step, like, like fevers and mirrors did like yeah. to, I, it affected me taking the plastic off this thing and being like, what is this? What, like what? And, and I'd only heard four wins at that point probably. And where, wherever we land on four wins, it, it feels, 
it feels big and grandiose in its way. It's literally like taught naming, listing off world religions and stuff like that. And so I, I think it all is just inviting you to think like, oh my God, this thing is going to be, it's go so, so big and so orchestral. And so this, and I, I remember being like a week or two in my car of just like, just keep listening, Justin, this baby is going <laughs> to really, really find its place for you. And in, and instead what happened is like, I arrived at like these five songs I absolutely love, but I have a desire to skip to them every time. And that you just got to listen to that at a certain point. That means that's just yeah. where I am, you know? There's maybe an interesting and telling contrast in that when I look at the packaging gimmick of Casadega, I see a bunch of gibberish that I don't really know if I want to take the time to decode. Uh, and when I look at Fevers and Mirrors, I see myself. What else could I see in, in that mirror? Yeah. And that's kind of the difference of those albums to me personally. Yeah. Although I, I, this is all a very, very personal take that I'm offering here. So I guess the only other thing I would add about personal Bright Eyes Connections is that we had a band here in, in uh, Chapel Hill called Sorry About Dresden that his brother, Matt Oberst, was a songwriter and um, guitarist. And Matt, unfortunately, passed away sometime, maybe it was 10 years ago or something now. But I talked about getting into, really getting into music here right after Archers and Polvo had broken up. And Sorry About Dresden was like one of my favorite local bands, partly because they were awesome and they sounded kind of like Archers. And partly because um, one of them was Bright Eyes' brother. I think he was, he was at Duke either as a student or a teacher is why he was here. And that just gave them this extra like, kind of mystique and cool to me. And I was also still in that phase of like becoming aware of like Midwestern, emo, you know, different pockets of music and how they interacted across the country and understanding like, oh, there's this group of like people in Omaha and now they're having this relation with these people in Chapel Hill and this conduit that has been established and like other Omaha people are coming or then there was a Florida wave years later, you know, so it's all tied in with me starting to understand kind of the, the geography of indie music, at least as it existed, you know, before the internet blew it away a few years later. <laughs> well, Evan, where can people find you as a person or, or music or anything along those lines? I think the main thing I'm doing right now is called Oh Lonesome Mana. It's uh, uh, findable on all socials at Oh Lonesome Mana. It's A-N-A. Oh Lonesome Mana put out a record this past year. That's great. And uh, Evan, Evan plays in Oh Lonesome Mana and, made some great records with the band Sun Valley Gun Club prior to that as well. Brian, where can people find you? I look forward to checking that out, Evan. It's been great to talk to you. Um, I am still incredibly eking out of a Pitchfork review a month or so. I'm also still writing for Indie Week, which is the alt-weekly here in Durham, where I worked as the arts and culture editor for some years until I joined the, the great quittening of 2020 and uh, went freelance again. So you can find my writings in those places and other places that I freelance out to, although I'm doing a lot of uh, editing books these days um, that has been biting into my freelance time. Um, I am on Twitter for the time being, although I never tweet. And as we all know, it's going to go dark any day now. Maybe you can find me on Mastodon. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen yet. Um, I do have a website. It's uh, waxroth.com. That's W-A-X-W-R-O-T-H. I'm not very good at promotion, as you can tell by that ridiculous website name. That's <laughs> you have to spell carefully for anybody. Nevertheless, waxroth.com. It's a phrase I think I took from like an old like Donald Bartholomew story or something, like an archaic phrase meaning to grow enraged, to wax wrath, to wax with wrath. Um, and that just became a brand of mine many years ago, and I just keep using it even though it makes no sense. So that's where I can be found. I respect it. <laughs> And thank you, Justin. I've really enjoyed this uh, podcast so far. 
And it was a lot of fun to be on it and to listen to Bright Eyes um, for the first time in quite a while. Like I told you, I don't listen to it much, but I still break it out and sing it with my guitar because the songs are just like that deep in me where I just get a taste for them sometimes. I need to I need to taste them even though I don't really listen to them. So this was really fun to go back and listen to a bunch of Bright Eyes and talk about it with you guys. Yeah, did you say did you say the day that I emailed you you were you'd played uh, June on the West Coast earlier that I day? I was. I was having a bright eye session that day. I played June on the West Coast. I probably played a, a new arrangement, which is one of my favorite super dark depressive ones um to play. Probably played um, you know, some fevers and mirrors stuff. So yeah, absolutely. It was funny. I was yeah, I was thinking about bright eyes and then I got this email and it was like, well, Kismet. Love that. <laughs> uh just a second. Thank you so much, Justin, for having me here and involving me and it's nice to meet you, Brian. Really good to talk you too, to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't done like like a group thing like this very much. And then also I think it kind of accidentally like I think this record, there's a, there's like a complicated kind of nuance to this record, not only just looking at the record, but the way the the wide variety of ways people feel about it. And I think having the three of us on all to talk about this kind of approximated that. Feel it feels appropriate. Accidental, but yes. She just can't. <laughs>